Welcome to the Context Matters Podcast. I am your host, Cindy Parker. I am an educator, explorer, writer, and speaker. I enjoy gathering around the table with interesting people who have different life experiences from me. And then we get to talk about God, Bible, theology, and other tangentially related subjects. Your voice is always welcomed around this table. You can reach out to me and let me know what you're thinking about through my website, narrativeofplace.com. This week, I am pleased to introduce you once again to Dr. Allie Robinson, who is a lecturer of New Testament studies at United Theological College, which is a part of Charles Sturt University in Sydney, Australia. Last week, we talked about why she got interested in this little letter of Jude, the one that's tucked in right before the book of Revelation. And then we talked about Second Temple literature that really helps us to understand the analogies and the content in Jude. This extra biblical material is assumed by the writer of Jude. If you were to read directly from the Hebrew Bible to the New Testament, you would get to Jude where he is suddenly talking about fallen angels. And you'd go, wait a minute, what? What did I miss? And there is this part where it says in verse 9 in Jude that Michael, one of the ruling angels, took issue with the adversary arguing over the body of Moses. Wait, what? That is definitely not in Exodus or Deuteronomy. I knew I needed to ask Dr. Robinson to take us through all these random, weird, and seemingly not-to-fit little tidbits in the book of Jude. Lean in and enjoy the conversation. That's why I love verse 5, because it's one of those verses that really got me thinking, like, wait, what is he talking about? You're fully informed of these things. He's clearly moving his way through Israel's history and there are these chunks that I have no idea what he's talking about. And so, there, as you said, there's these pieces of the puzzle that are just missing. And so, okay, he's talking to a group of Jewish people who were fully informed about fallen angels and the archangel Michael just spitting over the body of Moses. And so you're like, okay, we need to be reading this literature that literally you know, informed the Jewish worldview in order to understand this text, but not just this text. Like I think the New Testament Hmm. in general. It is fascinating to me because again, just over the last week when I was kind of reading through Jude again, trying to re-familiarize myself with a book that I have completely ignored. And I went, within this book, I can hear someone who is reaching for really significant moments in Israelite history, like deep, deep, deep into Israelite history, and yet holding on to this like weirdly formed idea of the spiritual world. And so, yeah, what do you do with that? Or how do you explain that to your students? Or do you just tell them, go read one Enoch? <laughs> I mean, because yes, I, I get the like the Genesis connections, the reaching back, because so many of the Gospels are doing that. But, but like this weirdly, vaguely mysterious weirdness of the spiritual realm, like how do we understand what's going on in this time period? Yeah. What I often say to my students is for us, it's weird, but for them, it wasn't. Yeah. So, reaching back to Genesis 
is the same as reaching back to one Enoch. There was, mm, in my I mind, it. I love it. There was no distinction. And so it's like, yeah, of course, of course, you would draw on both of these significant moments in Israel's history when angels fell. You know, like here we've got like these pinnacle moments, like Sodom and Gomorrah, my goodness, like, you know, the symbol of, you know, destruction. And so, yeah, you've just got these key moments, like the coming out of Egypt, the fallen angels, Sodom and Gomorrah. Like he's just touching on all these key moments, which I don't think they would have had like a hierarchy in their mind and being like, oh, yeah, okay, so here he's drawing from numbers. Oh, wait, what's this other reference to fallen angels? No, I think it would have all been Hmm. equal to them. What do you think is going on or what is the generally received idea of what is going on in Jude's community that requires Hmm. the text to be written? Because it feels harsh. Like sometimes yeah. <laughs> it feels like a trip down memory lane. And then in other places, it just feels really hard. So what is yeah. going on that requires this work? Yeah, it's a good question. So I think that when you read verses three and four, you kind of get a sense of what's going on. So I might just read those two verses. Beloved, while eagerly preparing to write to you about the salvation we share, I find it necessary to write and appeal to you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. For certain intruders have stolen in among you, people who long ago were designated for this condemnation as ungodly, who pervert the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. And so I think this is his motivating factor as to why he's writing. He's essentially saying he's writing to this congregation and he's saying to them, People have stolen in among you, or other translations say slipped in among you. There are people in your midst who are using grace as a license to sin, essentially. So they're perverting the grace of God into licentiousness. They're saying like, oh, great, like we're saved. Now we can do what we want. And they're denying that Jesus is our only Lord and Master Jesus Christ. So it's like, do they accept Jesus, but don't accept that he's the only Lord and Master, Mm -hmm. you know? and so. There are people in their midst who they haven't noticed are there. And that's so troubling for Jude. And so he then says, one of my favorite verses in verse 12, these are blemishes at your love feast while they feast with you without fear feeding themselves. And other translations talk about that being like that word blemish. In other translations, it has hidden wreaths. And so the symbol is like, you know, when you've got like a ship and like there's a, like a rock or a reef underneath the water and you can't see it. And then if the ship hits it, the whole ship will, you know, capsize. And that's essentially what he's saying. Like they're there eating with you at your love feast. There are your gatherings. I mean, if they're, sh- they're feeding only themselves, that's like shepherd language. So these are influential people in your midst teaching you and your whole community is going to be capsized by this false teaching, essentially. And you haven't noticed that they're there. And that's oh. the part that Jude is so concerned about. And so this is why I think he reaches back and he's like, this is not a small thing. Let's remember what happens when people don't respect, you know, the faith, when people don't you know, trust God or give allegiance to God. Like a lot of this sort of language 
in Jude is around like allegiance. So they reject authority and things like that. And so I think that essentially what he then does is he says, okay, well, let's think about the Israelites. I mean, you know, they were saved out of the land of Egypt and those who do not believe, so those who did not put their trust in God, well, what happened? That entire generation was destroyed in the wilderness. As you know very well, they didn't enter into the promised land. Huge consequences. What happens when the angels leave their place where they're, you know, meant to be servants of God in this heavenly realm and they decide to take matters into their own hands and come and have, you know, relationships with women of earth? Well, they are put into eternal chains in darkness and they're waiting for the great judgment of the day. Like the consequences of people who mislead or reject God or, you know, do not give their full allegiance to God, the consequences are huge. Hmm. And so I think this is why he uses these examples in order to awaken like so i talk in my in my work about how this is like an invective invective speech is insulting critical or even abusive speech there are lots of examples in the greco-roman world of this type of rhetoric and so with invective in like greco-roman literature invective really does want to shock people and wake them up and that's why he uses such graphic and visual language like you know if you go back to like verse 12 and keep reading it's like they are waterless clouds carried along by the wind autumn trees without fruit twice dead uprooted wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame you know wandering stars for whom the deepest darkest has been reserved forever like you know it's so like poetic and like oh like it's meant to evoke a little bit of like ah like yeah (laughs) this is serious we need to listen and Hmm. wake up and so that's kind of what this rhetoric does it draws attention to the seriousness of what's going on in the congregation but I think it also like invective has this funny like way of waking up the main you know collective in the audience but then also kind of (laughs) putting a spotlight on those who are doing the wrong thing. Like he never actually dresses the ungodly directly. He just sort of like these people, you know, like someone in this room has broken this <laughs> lamp, you know, that's something. Right. <laughs> so right. like, you know, he never directly addresses them, but through his polemic, he does kind of put a spotlight on them. And yeah, I think it's meant to literally bring into the light what they're doing and how destructive it is and how seriously it will be taken. And I think that's why he brings in the Enoch passage. Like this has been prophesied. Verse 14, see the Lord is coming with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict everyone of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. And of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Like, and then he brings it back to the ungodly in his context in verse 16. These are grumblers, malcontents. They indulge their own lust. They are bombastic in speech, flattering people in their own advantage. Like, you know, they're just, yeah, misguided and they're leading the congregation astray in their teaching. And that's really Hmm. serious to Jude. Yeah. It is curious to me to hear you reflect on this because I think... I know less about Peter's epistles and a little bit more about John's epistles because I've been digging into those recently, but John is doing the same thing in his epistles. But to this Greco-Roman 
embedded Christian church. So they're they're in the harshness of the Roman Empire fighting like the craziness of the Roman Empire that's getting worse and worse by the day. And they have people among them who are telling people, just compromise. It's fine. Yeah. So is yeah. Jude doing the same thing? Because it, it seems like the same kind of intensity of be so careful. Like these are people who are teaching you these things who are in the middle of you. And I feel like I'm reading to a certain extent Isaiah and Ezekiel, especially with the shepherds are eating the flock. Like, yeah, that's exactly right. We yeah. know this story. We know where yeah, this goes. Yeah, that's right. And that's why I think he uses this remember language. And it's it's the language that then two Peter picks up on later. Mm-hmm. And Peter really appeals to this, you know, memory, collective corporate memory of, you know, look at what God has done in the past. Look at how, and actually we see this in a lot of the general epistles. Hebrews does it too. Like, you know, think about like Hebrews 4, like, remember what happened? You know, why the people didn't enter into God's rest? Like, you know, like there's actually a lot of remembering going on. And 1 Peter, 1 Peter draws on Leviticus, like, you know, throughout so much of 1 Peter. Yeah. And so I think for these writers, like memory is so important it's pivotal and i think it's actually something that we have forgotten to do in our context yeah 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 and and particularly like it's interesting at the start when i was talking about how i grew up in kind of a more charismatic church like i didn't have a concept of sort of where church came from and where christianity came from and you know and i see that sometimes when i'm teaching like students just don't have this understanding that you know, the Jesus movement was a sect of Judaism and came out of Judaism and is embedded in Judaism. And, you know, the God of the New Testament isn't different from the God of the Old Testament. And, you know, it isn't all, all of a sudden cares about the poor and the widow. Like, you know, I was reading my students, some of Deuteronomy actually, and they were like, wait, what? Anyway, so it's funny. Yeah. So I think memory and it is a really good way to ground people and, interestingly in verse three when he talks about i appeal for you to contend for the faith the faith there is like like covenant language right the trust the faith like that which you have entered into and again like that's just echoes back to like think about all covenant language throughout the old testament you're like remember that and honor your commitment because when you don't the consequences are terrible In the email correspondences I had with Dr. Robinson prior to this interview, she made a reference to the surprising twist at the end of Jude. Well, that puzzled me because there are only 26 verses in Jude. What kind of surprising twist can there be? I had a suspicion. We were maybe reading different letters. I have to ask, what is the setup for the dramatic surprise that I'm not catching with a cursory read of Jude? And somehow it hinges on this little letter being invective speech. I'll just like give like a very brief kind of overview of like what's happening in with invective speech in this context. So in the first century, we've got political orators like Cicero who are mm-hmm. doing these public speeches where, you know, they're trying to, you know, shame someone in the sphere of their influence. And they're essentially trying to get that person 
disgraced and then exiled out of the community, right? And so basically what they do is they say like, you know, I'm like you, you know, to the people like, we're the good guys, you know, this guy, he's a loose cat, you know, he needs to go. And so it's sort of like very us and them, lots of like shame language, you know, this vile barbarian, like a lot of that sort of stuff. But the thing that's so interesting about invective is that usually what happens in invective, I'm going to read one to you because I I pulled it up before that I was just laughing. Cicero, in his like polemic against Piso, he's like hounding him. He's like calling him fake and deceitful. And, you know, he just like tears him to pieces. And then the end, he ends his invective with this like phrase where he just says that he wishes to see Piso despised and scorned by all and abandoned even by himself. And then in another, like, one speech against Antonius, he says he wishes to see him a vile barbarian drenched by his own vomit and reeking in his own shame. You know, it's just, like, so graphic and, you know, just really, like, get rid of this guy. He's just poison and, you know, deplorable and he should go, right? Well, like, I'm Italian, so, like, you know, I found, like, the harsh (laughs) rhetoric, like, yeah, like, you know, it was great, passion. (laughs) So, like, all these invectives that I read, and I read a lot from this period, and they all kind of ended, well, majority of them ended in this really harsh way. And I actually met with Raffaella Cribiori, who does work on rhetoric, and she's got that amazing book, Gymnastics of the Mind. I think it's called. Anyway, she was saying to me, look for the things that are different because you'll similarities are great. But when you see differences, really pay attention. And I was like, okay, great. So then when I was looking at Jude, I noticed this remarkable thing in verse 20. So just before verse 20, he's talking about how these people are worldly people devoid of the spirit who are causing divisions, right? And then verse 20. But you, beloved, build yourselves up in your most holy faith, pray in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, look forward to the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life, verse 22, and have mercy. And the thing like in the English text you may not see, but he says have mercy on those who are wavering. That word there is actually the same word that he uses in verse 9 when he says, but the archangel and Michael were contending over the body of Moses. Sorry, Mm. the archangel Michael and the devil were contending over the body of Moses. It's the same word. So they're said to have mercy on those with whom they are contending. So that's the part that gets missed because they translate it wavering, but it should be contending. So in verse 22, he's just done this huge, you know, invective rebuke. And then verse 20, he's saying like, you guys build yourselves up in most holy faith, wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ and show mercy onto those with whom you're contending. And I just found that remarkable because essentially what I heard there was Jesus saying like, show mercy, you know, as you have received mercy, like, you know, shouldn't you have shown mercy as I have shown mercy to you, like the, you know, Matthew text. And so I just thought, that's remarkable. That's really remarkable that there's no point here where they are called to exile these people, where they are called, they are definitely called to be cautious. Like verse 23, save others by snatching them out of the fire, have mercy on still others with fear, hating even the tunic defiled with their bodies. So like 
don't be tainted by their sin, but still have mercy on them. And then he just turns to him who's able to keep you from falling and make you stand without blemish. Like I just find the way it ends just so glorious and remarkable and like judgment is not ours. Judgment Mm. is Jesus. Judgment like, you know, in that verse, in verse nine, like the archangel Michael did not dare to bring a slander against the devil, but said the Lord rebuke you. So there's this kind of reminder to the congregation, like do not tolerate this sin. Wake up and realize that it's there. Do not be led astray by it. I I don't want your congregation to be shipwrecked by this false teaching around get grace, but you are not the judges of these people. Jesus is the judge. He is coming to judge the ungodly. You show mercy, but be on guard. Yeah, so... I just thought it was so beautiful and that was the surprising twist at the end. It really, I agree. I think there's something challenging even in a modern audience. I mean, in, in the U S church right now, I mean, I can just speak from my own context. We're polarizing each other. We're demonizing each other. And it's, it's pretty ridiculous the extent to which we're going. And, and I think this kind of teaching is missing the be careful what's in your midst, be careful what you're following, but the the stand back. And again, it feels like echoes of the, the Hebrew scriptures, like, but let God judge, let God bring yeah. condemnation, let him bring that, yeah. you know, and stand in full recognition of the mercy that you've received, grant that to others, don't accept the abuse, but take your complaint before God. And I think that kind of yeah. thing is is amazing, which makes me go, why don't we should be teaching from Jude? You've convinced me. It's so rich. And yeah, it, it, it really does make me sad that it doesn't get taught on. I mean, you hear people say the doxology, obviously, like the last two verses get said a lot in churches at least in the Anglican churches in Australia but that's about it like people probably wouldn't even know it comes from Jude (laughs) so funny thing I told someone I was going to talk to you about Jude and I was admitting that I didn't know a whole lot about what was in Jude and this friend of mine burst into song and started singing something which is (laughs) which is the doxology and I was like what is that she's like it's from Jude I'm like how do you even know that? She's like, I have no idea. It's a song my child used to sing. I was like, how is that connected to the rest of the letter? She was like, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's so interesting you say that because it's this incredible shift after he's just done this rebuke and then like given this word to the congregation. And then he like, he is no longer speaking to them. He's now speaking to God. Now to him who's able to keep you from falling and to make you stand without blemish in the presence of his glory with rejoicing to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, the glory and majesty and power and authority before all time now and forevermore. And it's just this gorgeous like reminder of who God is. And I love that language of like a, a verse that always like tripped me up was like verse 21. How does verse 21 and verse 24 like fit together? So verse 21 says, keep yourselves in the love of God. But then verse 24 says, now to him who's able to keep you. And I was always like confused by that, but it's actually two different Greek words. So one is saying like, 
you know, uh, abide in God's love, like keep yourself in God's love. Like, you know, you're encapsulated with it, like stay in it, know it, treasure it. But then the 24 one is like shepherd language, like to him, he's able to guard you, you know, keep you safe. Yeah. And it's like this affirmation at the end, like, you know, this, you can show mercy and you can build each other up and you can pray in the spirit because you are going to be guarded by God. You know, it's just beautiful. Hmm. Oh, I love it. I'm so glad you're interested in the book of Jude. <laughs> we need <laughs> you. We need you. <laughs> we yeah, need yeah, people obsessed yeah. with Deuteronomy like myself and we yes, need people obsessed I with know. Jude. Like we work well together. <laughs> I think that's true. Yeah. yeah. And, and yeah, and, and we do like, it, I think you're right. We do need people who teach faithfully on Deuteronomy because, you know, I was saying before, like a lot of students don't realize that the New Testament, and the Old Testament are connected and it's the yeah. same God. And that like, you know, Deuteronomy sets up this beautiful picture of what it looks yeah. like to be the people of God. And you teach on that so well. And it's like, that's sometimes forgotten and students don't realize like, wait, like, God's love for his people and the outsiders and the vulnerable. And like, that's not new to the new Testament. Like this is part of who God's character is and what he, you know, wants his people to look like. And we see that in Deuteronomy. Yeah. Yeah. And I think just the, the understanding of the continual outworking of what does this mean? And so we see that in Enoch that you were talking about the second temple literature that is, feeding into the New Testament gospels and these epistles as well. Like, right, we're we're finding this continual, as the world is changing, as society is changing, there's a continual holding into the deep roots of their faith and and a renewal of how do we interpret that in our day. And like we're just doing the same thing. And so it, it creates yeah. this interesting point of contact between us and them. Yeah. 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 I agree. Yeah. So cool. <laughs> Thank you for being <laughs> Thanks, on the podcast. It's been so <laughs> much fun. And I love yeah. It. I've, I've loved it. It's been great. And, um, yeah, thanks for asking me and inviting me to come and share on this bizarre little book that, <laughs> Yeah. No one knows about. <laughs> no, but now more people will. And I think any of these things that give us hooks into like realizing how beautiful and how nuanced some of these letters are, is just such a gift to us. So I thank you for that gift that you're giving us. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you for the work that you do in this podcast and your other podcast and just in general. <laughs> it's great. I hope you're inspired to go back and read Jude. It won't take you very long. If you want to find out more about Dr. Allie Robinson and read more about Jude or some of her recent projects on the significance of female characters in the New Testament, you will find some links in the episode notes of the show. This week, I am pleased to thank Lisa and Asuga Abaya and Kathy and Scott Parker for making this conversation about Jude possible. 
They are part of my Patreon team who has really stepped up and continue to sustain this project. I can't do it without my team. So thank you. And you are most welcome to join us if you would like. There's a link to the Patreon page in the episode notes of the show. I produced this episode. Luke Bronner of Milieu Media Group did the edits and the final mix. And Peter Lordson of Sycamore Sound created the music. It is really good to be with you. I look forward to our conversation next week. Until then, be safe, take care of each other, and stay curious about the world around you. 